0: you know, what you need to do is get sunlight before about 10am, you have these cells in your eyes that are very sensitive to sunlight in the morning. And these cells, what they do is they go to your brain, a part called the SCN, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and it sets your 24 hour clock, your circadian rhythm. And if you don't get light before like 10am, you know, in the early morning, then you miss that window to set your circadian rhythm, and it's going to be harder for you to fall asleep at night. Also, when you get exposed to sunlight, what happens is your body makes serotonin. It's one of the reasons why when you're outdoors, you feel so good. Serotonin is our neuromodulator associated with calm and happiness. And what happens at night is you turn that serotonin into melatonin. And melatonin is the darkness hormone. Basically, it tells your body it's dark outside. And when that happens, it starts to regulate normal sleep.
1: Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My goal with this project is pretty simple. In a world which has become increasingly divisive and polarized, I want to bring you a balanced perspective of health. To deliver on that promise, I'll seek out experts with conflicting opinions to tackle the topic of health from as many angles as possible in order to make this podcast into an amazing resource for anyone looking to improve their health. Thanks for joining me. Hello, welcome back to the Live Damn Well podcast. My name is Jorge Roman and today we're going to be tackling a super important issue and one that is very relevant to my life. I know insomnia, you know, not just insomnia, but things like sleep apnea, you know, sleep disturbances where you're waking up in the middle of the night multiple times where you find it really, really difficult to fall asleep and stay asleep. Um, You know, oftentimes from my clients, I'll hear, well, you know, I can actually fall asleep pretty well, but I'll wake up at like 2 a.m. and I'll be just in this like, fight or flight mode where I cannot fall asleep um, until I have to, you know, get up for work the next day. So this is something that I've been wanting to do for a while. You know, the main reason I talked to Dr. Harris is because he is like an encyclopedia on this stuff, um, everything related to health, but specifically with sleep, because he also went through his own, you know, struggles with insomnia. And so for him, this was like, you know, I'm not to put it dramatically, but life or death, this was like, if I can't recover my sleep... I can't have relationships, I can't even work out, I can't even feel happy, right? And so for him, it was like, I need to try to figure out what's going on with my sleep, otherwise I will not be able to, you know, function effectively during my daily life. So today, this part of the episode is gonna be all about sleep, how to get better sleep, you know, what are the mechanisms that actually drive um, improved sleep and what are the things that disrupt our sleep? Uh, But we're gonna go deeper than, you know, The usual stuff like oh don't eat too late at night or like you know that kind of thing we're gonna go a little bit deeper because for me at the time that I actually recorded this with him I was going through my own other kind of cycle of insomnia where I wasn't sleeping for you know weeks or months at a time and so for me sleep anxiety became a huge issue and I don't know if anyone has dealt with insomnia but you know it's at that point it's not just the physical side which is like oh I can't fall asleep and I can't stay asleep but you know it's really the the mental side it really starts getting to you because you know your whole day you start thinking to yourself oh crap i i do not want it to turn to nighttime because that means it's time for me to go to sleep and i can't go to sleep so i'll just be laying there for eight hours pretending right so that gets into you and that plays you know that's a whole other angle of this whole sleep issue so we talk all about that and some, you know, mindsets and some ways that we can kind of start to get around that because if we can't get around the anxiety side of sleep, then, you know, no matter what physical things that we do, we're still not going to see a major major benefit. Now, before we get into the show, if you have enjoyed this podcast and any other episodes before this, please think about supporting the show in one of the following ways. You can check out the sponsors which are linked below in the episode description or you can buy me a coffee to support the show and to keep me caffeinated. Thank you, thank you so much, and let's get into the episode. So today I have with me Dr. Richard Harris, joining me to talk all about sleep, Dr. Harris received his doctor of pharmacy from the University of Texas at Austin and his medical degree from the McGovern School of Medicine. And he now specializes in lifestyle medicine, personalized medicine, and health coaching. Dr. Harris, thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you for having me on the podcast. I really uh,
0: appreciate the time and uh, able to come in here and talk about something so important,
1: yet, most people do not
0: get enough of, and that's sleep.
1: Yeah. I saw one of your Instagram stories, and that's how I, you know, I I thought of doing an episode on sleep um, because I have suffered with sleep, and I saw that you, you know, you've said that you had insomnia since you were little. Um, so that's something that I struggled with, and I had no idea that it was that it was you know not as common as I thought it was. I thought it was normal to you know take hours to fall asleep. I thought it was normal to wake up five or six times every night um, and wake up just absolutely dead with no energy, even when I was like you know. 12, 13, when I should have, you know, really great energy. Um, So let's start with that. What was that experience like for you?
0: Yeah, it was similar to your story. I just thought it was normal because I was so young when I started to have insomnia that I thought that this is just my lot in life, right? When you're 12, 13 years old, you don't understand anything about how the world works. So (laughs) what you see is all there is, right? And so what I saw was, This is just how it's been, and I always had trouble falling asleep, and I woke up multiple times throughout the night and just dealt with it, and it wasn't until I got to pharmacy school that it became a big problem. I went from honor roll A student to almost failing a couple classes because it had gotten so bad that I was only sleeping an hour or two hours a night. I was falling asleep in my classes. Teachers were yelling at me. I was like this is horrible i need to change this and so i went on ambien was on it for two weeks i remember one time i took it and if you don't fall asleep on ambient and people actually abuse it for this property it'll make you hallucinate and i started to hallucinate like crazy i was seeing unicorns and rainbows and all this weird stuff and i said no more of this i need to figure out a way that i can get better sleep that is medication free And I really began to learn about sleep hygiene. And I realized that I've had horrible sleep behaviors my entire life. That wasn't the problem. Wasn't me. It wasn't something intrinsically wrong with me. I was doing everything you were not supposed to be doing to help my body fall asleep. And I went from sleeping two hours a night, waking up five or six times a night to sleeping seven to eight hours a night, waking up once a night to go to the bathroom and it took some time to get there. But all I did was change my mindset and change a few behaviors. And now I have no problem falling asleep. It used to take me an hour. Now it takes five minutes. And I only wake up once. My data on my aura ring says I'm getting good, relaxative sleep. And all I did was change a subset of habits and my mindset around sleep. And that was
1: it. So did you ever have um, like anxiety, like general anxiety or something about sleep as well? Yeah, I had
0: horrible sleep anxiety. Actually, the first thing I did to help with my insomnia was I got rid of the alarm clock because I used to wake up, look at the clock and be like, oh, my God, it's 2 a.m. It's going to take me another two hours to fall asleep. I'm not going to get sleep. And I would sit there and ruminate, right? All these negative thoughts would just cascade. And I remember that simple intervention of removing the alarm clock from the room and just using my phone and putting my phone like underneath my bed or something like that, where I wasn't going to look at it in the middle of the night, improved my sleep dramatically. And it changed my association with sleep to where I didn't have that sleep anxiety anymore. And that was one of the most powerful
1: things for me that helped me re-regulate my sleep cycle. Interesting. So that would be like a psychological intervention. And you also mentioned like the sleep hygiene thing. So what were some of the things that you started to do? One of the most important things I realized was I wasn't getting
0: enough sunlight. I remember I had some blood work done at the time, and my vitamin D was like two. (laughs) Wow. And so I was like, ooh, this is bad, because you're in school, right? I'm spending all my time in the pharmacy school or at home studying. And that's when I said, no, I need to start playing some outdoor intramurals again. So I started playing softball, playing football, started getting sunlight early in the morning you know, what you need to do is get sunlight before about 10am, you have these cells in your eyes that are very sensitive to sunlight in the morning. And these cells, what they do is they go to your brain, a part called the SCN, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and it sets your 24 hour clock, your circadian rhythm. And if you don't get light before like 10am, you know, in the early morning, then you miss that window to set your circadian rhythm, and it's going to be harder for you to fall asleep at night. Also, when you get exposed to sunlight, what happens is your body makes serotonin it's one of the reasons why when you're outdoors you feel so good serotonin is our neuromodulator associated with calm and happiness and what happens at night is you turn that serotonin into melatonin and melatonin is the darkness hormone basically it tells your body it's dark outside and when that happens it starts to regulate normal sleep patterns and so that was one of the other interventions that i did Another is I remove all the lights from my room. I realize that for me to sleep, I need to be in pitch black. I am very sensitive to the effects of light. And there's data showing that even light that you don't really consciously perceive, if it hits your eyes, it can cause all kinds of adverse metabolic effects. There's one really good study in women where it showed leaving the TV on, you're more likely to be overweight or obese at night because of the effects of light hitting the eyes and then light signaling to the body to wake up and the cortisol stress response and all you know these things that we can we can talk about but putting myself in a dark room cooling the room down I was sleeping in too many clothes at too hot of a temperature and so cooling my body down because that's another signal for your body to enter a normal sleep cycle and so these are the things I found and I just slowly started to add in these different interventions and over time it made a huge difference and I'm still doing the same things now what
1: nineteen years later, that worked for me when I was in college. I, I do want to talk a little bit more about um, you know light and sleep because I think much of the conversation, maybe not anymore now, but you know a few years ago, used to be you know just don't get light at night, just remove all light at night, and you'll 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 be fine, right? And that's kind of where I started, but it wasn't enough for me. Like I you know I got the fancy kind of like really goofy looking blue light, blocking glasses and um, right before bed, like an hour or two before bed. And I'd wear those around the house, but I still, it had some sort of effect, but it, it wasn't great. Right. I started doing some of the things like you said, I would go outside. um, I'd get ample sunlight. My vitamin D was also pretty bad. Not as bad as a two, but it was like a 20, something like that. Um, So how exactly does that work. You mentioned serotonin as a mechanism, but um, how does it, you know, signal, you know, becoming overweight? What is the mechanism for that?
0: Yeah, so it's complex, but we'll start what we mentioned earlier. So you have these cells in your eyes, these um, melopsin sensing cells, and what they do is they're at the bottom of our eyes, and they're put there because sunlight's above head. So these cells sense light coming from above. And these cells are connected to the SCN, suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is the circadian rhythm center of our brain for sleep, wake, light, dark kind of cycles. And so what happens is that light hits and it tells your brain that basically, hey, it's morning, start the clock. And you want that to happen, like I said, early in the morning. And that sets that circadian rhythm for 24 hours a lot of our body a lot of the hormones and things like that work on a circadian rhythm a 24-hour rhythm now what you don't want to do is have a lot of bright light exposure at night because that pathway is going to continuously be stimulated one of the things you can actually do to help this is like you said the blue blockers. blue light is the most powerful stimulator but it's not so much blue as it is the intensity of light So at night, instead of blacking the house out, what you want to do is cut off the overhead lights and use lamps. Because remember, these light sensing cells are at the bottom of your eyes. They they look upwards. So if you use lamps, it's not stimulating those cells. The other thing that you can do is get light around dusk when the sun is coming down, because it desensitizes those cells to light in the future, because that's the signal that where the sun is and the intensity of light at that time to your body that nighttime is coming so those are the two things with light you want to get light early in the day before 10 a.m you want to try and get light around dusk when the sun is setting and it doesn't take that much you know two to ten minutes of light around that time can help set your circadian rhythm
1: have you ever wanted to learn how to make your own food and no i'm not talking about some pinterest recipe that you find although i'm not knocking pinterest but I'm talking about making real sourdough from scratch. I'm talking about making mozzarella cheese in your own kitchen. I'm talking about butchering an animal from start to finish. If so, if you wanna learn how to prepare food like our ancestors and really preserve these traditional cooking methods, which make food as nourishing and as delicious as possible, please make sure to check out Dr. Bill Schindler's website, eatlikeahuman.com. He has these amazing cooking classes that are all virtual, and they happen several times throughout the year. If you wanna get a 10% discount off of their classes, please use code LIVEDAMWELL at eatlikeahuman.com. And then how does this impact your hormones? Well, we said that your
0: hormones, a lot of them are on 24-hour rhythms. We make growth hormone at night. We make testosterone at night. Now, what happens in the morning is One of the things that happens when we first wake up within 30 to 60 minutes of waking up is you get a surge in this hormone called cortisol and cortisol is the stress hormone. We get that surge in the morning because it helps us deal with the day. That's your wake up, get alert, get started. Let's get going through the day. And we we make a lot of that in the morning. So we have enough throughout the day. And then at night, you're supposed to wind down, get sleep, replenish it in the morning. Now, what can happen is disruptions in our circadian rhythm caused by lack of sleep can alter the release of cortisol, where you can get too much cortisol. Maybe there's too much secreted in the morning and too much cortisol can cause elevations in blood sugar, signal the body to store body fat. It can change our mood. It can make us more anxious, more irritable. And so that's how this happens with light exposure throughout the night. If you're having bright lights or TV on or something like that, because you're getting low level stimulus to these systems. So you're going to get a dysregulation in that stress access or what we call the HPA access. And so that's why it's so important to have the room as light free as you possibly can when you sleep. And then what we do at night, like I said, is around the time the sun goes down, we cut off the overhead lights and we turn on lamps, or if we have an overhead light on, it's not directly above us. It might be on on the side. So it's just illuminating the room lightly. You don't want a bunch of bright lights at night. Some people find the blue blockers helpful. My glasses have them automatically because I stare at computer screens a lot. But again, it's more the intensity of light you should be thinking about as opposed
1: to the the blue frequency. So if if I'm getting this right, there's a few components to light. Um, it's not just the color. It's not just, you know, wear blue blockers and you're fine. It's, uh, you know, it's the intensity, it's the elevation. Where is it? Is it above your head? Is it, you know, in the middle, is it below? And then that has different mechanisms in terms of, um, you know, hormones in terms of how that can impact weight loss, how that can impact, you know, things like anxiety or, you know, our ability to even wake up in the morning, which is something that I had really tough time with for a long time. Um, and so, all of these things are, I think, so overwhelming a little bit, <laughs> like at the beginning, for me, they were definitely a bit overwhelming. What are some of the things out of those listed that are like the biggest bang for your buck, you would say? I would say there's two
0: things that you can do early on in the day to improve your sleep that you can start doing today. Mm-hmm. Number one, get that sunlight. I can't emphasize that enough. Get that sunlight early in the morning, two to 10 minutes. If you're wearing sunglasses, you need a little bit more, right? Because that, that blocks some of the light. If you're not wearing sunglasses, you're wearing regular glasses, it actually helps focus the light on your eyes. So that's good for us four eyes out there like me. Now, the other thing that you can do early on the day, exercise, exercise. So what happens is there's something called the sleep homeostatic drive. And this basically is a signal to tell your body it's time to go to sleep. What happens is as we're metabolizing food and making proteins and breaking proteins down, all the stuff we need to do, make hormones, clean up dead cells, all the things our bodies need to do to keep healthy, you build up metabolic byproducts. And one of them is called adenosine. And adenosine, what happens is the levels come up throughout the day. And once it reaches a certain threshold, that's when you start to feel sleepy. Another thing, quick tip is when you start to feel sleepy, go to sleep. Because that's a signal that your body's telling you that it's time, everything is right for me to go to sleep. So if even if it's early one night, just go to sleep. You'll find that you'll get very restful sleep. But what happens is if you exercise, what it does is it shifts that adenosine curve a little bit because now you've entered a period early in the day where you had a rapid metabolism. So those adenosine levels will reach that threshold a little bit sooner. Also, what happens is you raise your body temperature a little bit early in the morning. That'll help you feel more awake, but it will also help with that circadian rhythm because the way the body talks, all the cells talk in the circadian rhythm is through temperature. So your temperature is actually lowest about two hours before you wake up. And then it slowly starts to increase. You hit a temperature max and then it starts to come back down throughout the day. And so if you increase your temperature in the morning, It helps further set that circadian clock. It's going to make you feel more alert, and then it's going to help you sleep better in the evening. So those are two very simple things that you can do that will dramatically improve the quality of your sleep. Are you someone who recommends fasted exercise in the mornings? It depends. You know, there's nothing magical about fasted exercise, right? If you look at the data, it shows that people who do fasted exercise do burn more calories when they exercise but then they tend to eat more calories throughout the day because they're hungrier. So it it equals out. Right. I personally work out fasted because food in my stomach, when I work out, I feel terrible, horrible. I get bad GI upset when, if I have food in my stomach, when I work out. So you have to individualize it. It's like anything else. You know, people always ask me what's the best time to work out. Now there's some data that shows you can get more strength gains if you work out in the evening, but if you're not like a performance athlete, doesn't really matter. Just work out when you can. Right. Right. It's the same thing with fasted workouts. If you feel better working out fasted, like me, work out fasted. If you feel horrible when you work out fasted, don't work out fasted. Go, you know, two to four hours after you eat something and then work out. Right. So, these are the kind of things where you kind of have to individualize it and you have to work with somebody who knows the data and can interpret that data for you personally. Because if you listen to news stories, you're going to hear all different kinds of oh, fasted workouts suck. Fasted workouts are the best, right? So it's hard for people to know what to do. But the
1: best thing is what works for you and your body and your schedule. Yeah, absolutely. That's something that um, I started health coaching about a year ago. And that's something that I've I've come to learn pretty quickly. It's like you're not trying to give someone a very, a too rigid of, you know, instructions. And, you know, in most cases, you're not even really supposed to give like health recommendations at all. You're supposed to help the person try to figure out what's best for them. And so I love that because, you know, the research could say one thing, but it's always context dependent, right? If someone has like three kids and, you know, they can't get to the gym until, you know, 5 p.m. I mean, it's a, it's a you know, good, better, best scenario, I think. You're absolutely right. You know,
0: there's, there's always going to be an optimal scenario, but optimal may not be the, the thing that you want to do, because it, it it keeps you from actually doing it. Right? It's like exercise. I hear people say, well, I don't exercise because I don't have an hour to exercise. And I say, I don't work out for an hour. Not anymore. When I was in college, and I had all the time in the world. Sure. Right. And most of that, like an hour of that was talking to my gym bros. Right. <laughs> but you don't need that 75 minutes of strenuous activity a week resistance training is all you need to be healthy literally that's it so i tell people can you do 25 minutes three times a week and everybody's like oh yeah i can do that that's that's easy that's all i have to do that's it to be healthy that is literally all you have to do and so we get these notions in our head of i got to be perfect it's got to be optimal i'm like no when i travel i carry resistance bands with me because if I'm not able to hit the gym, at least I can do a quick 10-15 minute body weight resistance band workout, right? I, I will try to get in what I can depending on where I am. And that's going to change depending on my environment. And that's okay. I didn't lose all my muscle mass because I did one 15 minute resistance band workout as opposed to go to the gym.
1: Right? No, absolutely. And I was um, it was spring break for me um, last week and the week before that. So I had two weeks and I wasn't able to really go to the gym. Um, And that's something that I had feared for a long time. And it's something that with my clients, they tend to get very, you know, very perfectionistic. And I can understand that if you're very committed, you don't want to, you know, waste a day, you don't want to, you know, not go to the gym for a day, because you feel like you're not upholding that commitment. But the reality is, it takes a much longer time to lose those strength gains or those muscle gains and just like even a week. Um, And so you can also do other things like you mentioned, like the bands, like the body weight exercises. Um, That's something that I started to do, uh, even at the airport, Um, like people will look at me funny, but like, I'll just start doing like push-ups or squats, like when I'm waiting for my flight. Um, And so there are definitely a lot of other things you can do. Now, I wanted to dive into well, first, before we dive into insomnia, um, more in depth, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that the best time window to kind of set your circadian rhythm is sometime before 10 AM. How do you know exactly what time? Because I think that varies with region. Right. So it's that in whatever region you're
0: in, right? Right. It's just based upon where the the sun is and how intense the sun is in the morning. And then is it based upon what we know about our own biology and that circadian rhythm. So Ideally, like I said, before 10, it's just early in the morning. What I tell people is just, just go out early in the morning, get at least two minutes of sunlight. I don't know, drink your coffee outside, something, right? Do some stretching outside, read the newspaper outside, listen to an audible, pray outside, whatever it is, just get outside for a little bit.
1: So there's not, um, you know, as long as there's sun out before 10 a.m., that's typically okay? Yes. Perfect. Okay, so I wanted to shift gears and talk about um, insomnia anxiety and and sleep anxiety more in depth. So uh, beginning with with insomnia, how common is it and other sleep disorders? They're very common. I think it's something like
0: oh I can't remember the exact number, but it's most people will report occasional insomnia and insomnia, in general is one of the most common reasons people go to their primary care docs to, to seek treatment. Now the problem is people give you medication, right? And if you look at the clinical data on studies, like with Ambien and some of these other medications, they get you minutes more of sleep. That's it. And what they do is they decrease the phase three and phase four part of sleep, that kind of restorative deep sleep. So these medications are linked to Alzheimer's and dementia Because that restorative phase three, phase four, that deep sleep is when we clear out plaque and stuff in our brains. There was a really cool study that was done a couple of years ago that showed when you sleep, what happens is your blood pressure kind of will go up and down. And when it goes down, what happens is you get a wash of cerebral spinal fluid, this fluid that's around the brain. And it literally washes over your brain like a wave. and, And that's a signal to pull the toxins that the brain generates throughout the day out. And this is why you see a lot of times people who uh, have insomnia have higher risks of dementia because they are not getting enough time for their brains to repair and and recover. So it's something that is very, very serious. People think lack of sleep oh whatever, but lack of sleep is linked to high blood pressure and diabetes, depression, obesity, cardiovascular disease, cancer. It's linked to all the bad stuff that's killing Americans. And most Americans do not get that
1: seven to nine hours of sleep that's recommended. Yeah, absolutely. That That's something that I, you know, when I started to really take my my sleep more seriously, I, I started listening to Dr. Matthew Walker, who's, I think, become a huge voice in the world of, of sleep. Um, and it was, it's kind of strange, right? When I talk about what I learned from Dr. Matthew Walker, from listening to his interviews and his book, it's kind of a double edged sword, because I heard, you know, I heard him, you know, sleep is really important. You even one bad night of sleep can cause you to have lower insulin sensitivity and blah, 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 some other, a bunch of other negative health consequences the next day. Right. Um, But he also gave some good tips. But for me, because I, you know, I had pretty severe anxiety. All I could think about was when I was going to bed, oh, I'm going to have lower insulin sensitivity tomorrow. I'm going to be more predisposed to Alzheimer's. I'm going to be more predisposed to dementia. So how do you get around that? what worked for me was mindfulness and
0: accepting where you are and realizing that where you are doesn't necessarily indicate where you're going to be. So people always ask me with like chronic disease, am I going to be on this medication for the rest of my life? I go, it depends. Depends on if you keep doing the stuff that brought you into this office today. If you change course, who knows where you're going to go? And one of the, I think the most powerful things that you can do to help yourself sleep is mindfulness. There's a specific set of mindfulness called non-sleep deep rest. And what non-sleep deep rest does is it primes your nervous system to kind of just chill out, to turn off the alarm signals, to really focus inward on what's happening inside your own body. And it actually suppresses our stress hormones, cortisol, epinephrine, norepinephrine, or adrenaline, noradrenaline. And that can actually help you fall asleep. And so what I'll do is I'll have like a quick five-minute meditation session before bed. And what that does is it kind of helps me forget about everything that happened to that day and prepares me for the next phase in the day. So I will meditate typically at any transition point in the day. Wake up, before work, middle of work, before. Uh, I come home or before my wife comes home. And then before bed, and it doesn't have to be like 20 minutes, sometimes it's just one or two minutes, sometimes it's just a quick breathing exercise. But that can help with that anxiety, literally the physical component to anxiety where your body gets stress hormone release. Now, the other component to anxiety is a port, the portion that we don't really talk about. And that's the mental portion of anxiety. There's a physical portion, there's a mental portion. And the mental portion is a lot harder to deal with because that's that's our own thoughts and our own emotions. And that's where the growth mindset comes into place, realizing that you're not a finished product, that you can change, that you can learn, that you can get better. And that if you're having horrible insomnia, you're not gonna fix it in one, two, three, four, five nights. It might take a couple months, but you just start somewhere, start with one positive thing. Okay, well. Dr. Harris said, getting light in the morning is good for my sleep. I'm going to start doing that. You do that consistently. Okay, he said exercise in the morning. Okay, I'm going to get that 25 minutes of exercise in the morning before work. All right, and then you just keep moving down the line of beneficial things. And that way, you're not really anxious about, oh, my God, I need to overhaul everything. You just pick one thing, focus on it, master it, move on to the next. And incorporating mindfulness overall, it's just good for everything. Mindfulness lowers inflammation. It makes us smarter. It helps us sleep. It helps our nervous system recover. It's actually associated with lower blood sugar levels, lower blood pressure. So it's one of the easiest interventions that you can do. And the target for that is an hour a week. That's what I tell people. Can you get me an hour a week of mindfulness? And, you know, there's 120-ish waking hours a week. I just ask for an hour for mindfulness about of an hour of exercise, you know, hour 15 minutes of exercise, that's two hours of those 120 hours of your week to improve your health, improve your sleep. I think that's something that a lot of
1: people can do. Yeah, I think um, I first heard of this concept of like the minimum effective dose with Dr. Peter Attia. Um, And it's something like, you know, like with exercise, like you said, um, I think you said 75 minutes, you know, is a good kind of starting point. Um, And it's similar with, with meditation or stress reducing habits, Um, specifically in terms of the, the nine non-sleep deep rest that you mentioned, you said uh, breathing and meditation. Uh, Are there specific types of breathing and meditations that you recommend or, you know, just kind of whatever you, you can do. Yeah. I think everybody's a little bit
0: different when it comes to mindfulness, because it means different things to different people. Some people, it's a walk in the park. Some people, it's just think about their day. Some people, it's prayer. Some people, it's, you know, whatever. For the non-sleep deep rest, there are a couple of protocols. The one I've tried is one I heard from Huberman Lab podcast. And if you like this stuff, check out Huberman Lab's podcast. He those way in-depth about all this stuff about sleep. But he, there's a protocol called Yoga Nidra. And it's like 10 minutes, there's a YouTube play look. And you can just listen to it. And it's breathing exercises and then guided meditation. The thing that most people do, and you know this as a health coach, right? Most people start with action. That's the wrong place to start. You want to start with getting crystal clear on your values and your why. And you want to find someone to help you get there. It's like, what is every business person who's successful say, I had a mentor. We'll find someone who knows about health, who's done it, who's walked the journey and have them mentor you along in the process because they're going to make it a lot easier. And so if you're starting to meditate, don't just go out there and try to do it on your own. There's lots of great apps, Headspace, Calm, Insight Timer. These are all great apps that will teach you how to meditate. And that's what I did at first. I used those apps. I learned, I learned the principles. I, I tracked it on you know, my aura ring, watching my heart rate variability I can see the difference. And then I I put my own spin on it after that. But I had someone coach me through how to do it.
1: How accurate are those aura rings? Because I've heard mixed, kind of mixed opinions about how accurate they are for sleep. Yeah, the new
0: update is a lot more accurate. So that's one of the cool things about aura is they're constantly doing research. This is a sidebar here. The aura ring is incredible. When I had COVID the first time, it said, Hey, I think you're sick. And I was like, I'm fine. I'm not sick. I don't feel horrible at all. Next day I woke up. I was like, Oh God, I feel like death. And that's because it, the algorithm it used it sensed temperature fluctuations, since heart rate variability changes, since breathing rate changes and it can really accurately diagnose when someone's sick. In fact, they're doing ongoing research on that. So the sleep portion is tough because, you know, if you're lying there kind of sedentary, right, it's hard for a lot of these trackers to pick up are you asleep or are you not, but their algorithm as they continue to get more data is getting better. So the new update is, is a lot better. And it's uh, pretty accurate for me. It's pretty accurate when I, when the results say I've gotten good sleep, I feel great.
1: And when the results say that I did not get good sleep, I feel terrible. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I think one of the things that kind of persuaded me against getting it just for me, especially when I was going through a really rough patch of sleep anxiety was uh, I thought that, you know, getting those um, kind of biofeedback, I guess the actual like, you know, measures would actually make me more anxious and obsessive about the sleep. Um, So for me at the time, I thought it was something that probably wasn't going to be too helpful, but um, I'm definitely interested in that stuff. I think it's going to be, I think that's going to be the future of health.
0: Yeah, there's actually organizations doing this right now where if you enroll in the organization, they give you one of these trackers and you meet with a doctor once a month to talk about what the numbers mean and adjust what's going on. That is the future of health. That's personalized medicine. Right. And that's something that we're looking at at one of my companies is incorporating that as well, because that's what I do in my personal life. I did it with my private clients. I think it it has a role. But you mentioned, right, like we talked about earlier, there's no one size fits all. So if someone says, you know, I think this is going to worsen my anxiety right now, don't do it. Don't do it. Absolutely don't do it. Wait until you feel like things are under control. And then getting that biofeedback, it can be very essential in optimizing plans. But again, it's individualized. If it's not going to work for you, don't do it. If you think it's going to help you do it. And I found that it's helped me and my wife.
1: What are the names of those organizations, by the way?
0: One of them is in Austin. Oh, my gosh. I'm just blanking on the name. Uh, I can't remember the name. It's, no worries. It's a, it's a, Yeah, it's a group out of Austin. There is also some direct-to-consumer companies who are starting to look at that as well. Uh, companies like Forward and One Medical. These are like DPC, uh, direct primary care models. And they're starting to incorporate some of that tracker data and that wearable data But this is, this brings up a good point is a total sidebar. This is something I've been thinking about a lot lately is that I think the role of, of physicians is changing. I think that a physician in this day and age, given their constraints and limited time, their main job is to diagnose you, their job is not to heal you, they just don't have time. Their job is to get you an accurate diagnosis. And then it's kind of up to you to figure out what's best for your body. And having as much information like this as possible can help you tailor a plan and figure out what is going wrong. And that's the way I use it. That's the way I instructed my clients to use it. When I was taking personal clients, I always told them that my goal is to get you to a point where you don't need me anymore, where you can look at your own biorhythms, feel what's going on and have all the information to adjust what is necessary and then you just come to me for blood work once a year, right? That was my goal. I, I mm-hmm. did that successfully with multiple clients where I taught them enough about their bodies so that they could figure it out. And I think that's the, the future of medicine is, is this informed health consumer able to read their own biorhythms, their own biofeedback, have the right information to adjust things accordingly.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I think I used to be in the camp that I would kind of denounce a lot of conventional medicine, and I would just be like, "Oh, you know, this is this is terrible. Like, why why would I only get prescribed a medicine rather than them help me actually try to fix the root cause?" Or like with my mom, she had um, and has Hashimoto's. It's like, why are they trying to just you know cover it up with a medication rather than trying to get to the root cause? But then as I started to learn about you know insurance and you know things that um, kind of prevent the allopathic physician from engaging for longer periods of time with the patient. You know, I think the average is like 12, 15 minutes, something like that um, of, of time with a patient. It's, it's literally impossible. Right. Um, and I think there's a big n- niche to fill there. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, there is. And, and one of the things I want to mention, I, I should have brought this up earlier was you mentioned about sleep anxiety. One of the number one reasons people have sleep anxiety is they are drinking way too much caffeine way too much caffeine. You know, I'll regularly talk to people who are drinking 500, 600 milligrams of caffeine a day. And I say, well, why do you need that? Well, because I'm tired. Well, what have you done to optimize your sleep? To you optimize your sleep? You won't be as tired. And, and drinking that much caffeine can actually have adverse effects to where it makes you actually more prone to fits of anxiety and sleeplessness. Because what caffeine does is it blocks that sleep homeostatic drive I talked about earlier. It blocks that adenosine signaling so you feel more... It literally cuts off your body's signaling to feel sleepy. That's how it works. Now, caffeine has a bunch of health benefits. I get about 100 to 200 milligrams of caffeine a day. I usually do it early in the day, and I don't do it after 2 or 3 p.m. That's when I cut it off because caffeine, on average, stays in your system six to eight hours. So if you're having some caffeine at 6 o'clock and you want to go to bed at 10 o'clock, probably not going to happen. Now, some people... fast metabolizers some people have adenosine receptor changes to where they don't caffeine doesn't have that effect we all have that friend who can drink three cups
1: of coffee and then fall asleep right that's a genetic thing but that's not most of us got it got it yeah i definitely have those friends and i'm very envious of them um i wanted to talk about electromagnetic fields Um, i wanted to get your opinion on that because as we mentioned with aura rings there's there's also been, you know, I listened to a whole bunch of different people and with a bunch of different opinions. And one of them is with, with EMFs, right? And with aura rings specifically, or with really any sort of technology, even though aura rings can be incredibly helpful, one of the concerns that people have had is the radiation. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting topic
0: because we're starting to figure out more and more about these energy frequencies. And I'm a huge energy energy medicine fan, huge. I have a PEMF device, I have an infrared sauna device, I have ozone, I have negative ions. I'm deep, deep into energy medicine. And I I know it works. And I've seen it work. So yes, there's a lot of harmful EMF out there. So here's the thing. And people don't do a good job of explaining what happens with harmful EMF or electromagnetic fields. Our body exists as basically a battery. We have a charge. There's a charge gradient, meaning there's a difference in charge on the outside and the inside of our cells. And by manipulating the charge on the inside and outside of our cells, things happen. This is how we move nutrients in. This is how we move toxins out. This is how basically everything starts in our body. And so what happens with this EMF is these, it disrupts that charge gradient. To now, we're not as efficient moving nutrients in and, and toxins out of the cell. And this can disrupt numerous processes, metabolism, blood flow, cellular regeneration, all of these processes that depend on it. And so, what beneficial EMF does, like PEMF or grounding, actually, there's a ton of research on grounding. People believe grounding is just like hippie stuff. It's not, there's tons of research. On the benefits of grounding, improving mood, improving inflammation. The Earth has a pulsatile electromagnetic field. And it was about 50 times stronger when the dinosaurs roamed the Earth. So they had a lot more beneficial EMF. We have a lot more negative EMF, Wi Fi, cell phones. 5G is a big problem, big problem because of the energy frequency. It's so high energy, the wavelengths are so short. That's why the towers, there's so many towers and it's a very high energy wavelength. These things are going up everywhere. And of course, some people are going to be more sensitive to EMF than others. Right. right? You know, it's like how some people can say that, oh, they know when it's going to rain. Well, those people are more sensitive to changes in barometric pressure. I'm one of them. I can feel the changes in barometric pressure and I know I'm like, it's probably going to rain because I can feel it. Some people are more sensitive to electromagnetic fields. And so what we have to do is do our best to protect ourselves. They sell all kinds of EMF blockers. I have some from a company called Therisize. Those are the ones I have at the house. I have a infrared sauna slash PEMF device. The PEMF, what it does is it actually reorients that charge. So I use it about 10 to 20 minutes a day to help offset the negative effects of harmful EMF. So EMF is something to take seriously. It's something to be aware of. It's something that some people are more sensitive to others. Things like using spring water, eating a whole nutrition food, because you actually get beneficial ions from the foods we eat. Things like exercise. All of these things can help with EMF. Things like being around natural water. So natural bodies of water are great sources of, of good electromagnetic fields. That's why you feel so good when you go to the beach. There's tons of negative ions there, right? Waterfalls. Why do we love waterfalls? Tons of negative ions. Why do we like going outside after it rains? Tons of negative ions. And those have been associated with improvements in mood. So this is something I'm very aware of. And this is something that I plan for. This is something that I have devices at the home to counteract, because it's not going to get any better, we're going to continuously be exposed to more harmful EMF and you have to do things like grounding or have these PEMF devices or infrared saunas or something like that to help your body offset the harmful EMF?
1: Yeah. So as I understand it, EMFs, um, well, one of the mechanisms which are theorized, um, to work through is the voltage gated calcium channels where they actually increase the amount of calcium in the cell. And then further down the line that creates more, um, uh, like superoxide and and things like that that are potentially ne- uh, damaging, right? Um, but in terms of sleep, how exactly, other than you know maybe anxiety is what I've heard that can also um, be triggered by EMFs. What else uh, do do EMFs do? Yeah, so once you dysregulate blood flow and metabolism, you
0: dysregulate everything, and it just kind of depends on the person. So there's only like seven root causes of disease, but there's not seven diseases. It just manifests differently in everybody's different genetics or different situation or different exposures, right? So one of the things that we know is associated with EMF exposure is mood. And so when you use like a PEMF device, one of the things that happens is you get better signaling in serotonin and adenosine. So it actually improves sleep and it actually improves your mood. Again, we talked about serotonin neuromodular it deals with basically being satisfied with where you are in life. That's what serotonin's main job is feeling like you have enough. So these are things that can you can see benefit in people who have these conditions. When I had a medical grade um, PEMF device, people with depression and anxiety would come in to do a quick session. That helps through improving blood flow, improving metabolism, improving these neuromodular signalers, and that can improve your mood, decrease your anxiety, and help you sleep. Now, there's different wavelengths of the PEMF, and you can some of the devices you can set the different wavelengths. Like certain wavelengths are associated with more um, alertness, awakeness, cognitive function. Others are associated with better relaxation. So you can kind of play around with it and use it and tailor it to to how you
1: want. But the takeaway here is get your feet on mother Earth. sometimes. Yeah, that's, I I always laugh when I hear that because whenever I started talking about that with my friends, it always be, Oh, that that's some woo woo stuff right there, man. Like, what are you getting into? What kind of health stuff are you getting into with grounding? But, but no, as you said, There's some really solid evidence coming out and um, it's, it's only, you know, recently in the past few years that I think it's, it's really starting to grow and the interest is really starting to grow in, in kind of um, in electromagnetic fields, but not only the negative side, also like the positive mitigation strategies. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that's readily affordable now.
0: Like I have two PEMF devices in the house, they're PEMF infrared, and one of them has negative ions. The big one that's a full body one was $1,000. The small one was like $500. I travel with it, right? And yeah. as this is becoming easier and easier to make and you get economy of scale and all that, these devices continue to get cheaper and cheaper. And it was well worth the investment. My wife uses it. She loves it. She has PCOS. It's helped with her inflammation. It's helped her face clear up. I use it for my sciatica. I have sciatica congenital. And I have scoliosis and I herniated discs. So I will take the travel one with me. I kid you not, I was in Austin, brought it with me. Flying always disrupts my sciatica. You know, it's uncomfortable. All the, I just hate it. So my leg was numb when I landed. Got to where I was staying, fired up the device. 20 minutes later, back pain gone, feeling back in the leg. And, and, That happens to me time and time and time again, and I've seen it happen time and time again. And it's not voodoo, it's just priming our natural biological systems. Again, we are energetic beings. We respond to light, we respond to energy. What Light is an energy frequency. And we know that does a lot of positive things in the body. So energy medicine is real and does have a lot of positive tangible benefits. Is there a specific PEMF device that you'd recommend? Yeah, what I have in the house is from a company called Higher Dose, spelled like it sounds, Higher Dose. And they have infrared and PEMF device together, which is what I like because I didn't have to buy two of them. It's highly effective, cost savings, and they're low negative EMF devices. So I've done podcasts on this. One of the things you have to worry about is a lot of the older devices in this emitted a lot of harmful EMF as they generated the magnetic fields because they were cheaply made right the the newer ones from a good reputable company
1: have little negligible or no harmful emf signature yeah i know that's also a concern with uh, red light therapy devices they also emit some potentially negative emfs um, and kind of You know, you don't know if you're doing more harm than good in that sense, because Mm -hmm. the red light therapy, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of good evidence with that. But if you're just irradiating your face or something, you're probably not, not a good thing. Right.
0: And it's like like anything, do your research. I have a red light panel from Therisize. I have a little energy medicine corner. So I have my red light panel. I have my infrared PEMF device on a massage table. I have a a portable ozone device and I use that for 10 to 20 minutes a day It's kind of
1: just my energy medicine recharge That's awesome. Yeah, I definitely want to get to the point where I have a station for that. Thank you for listening to that episode with Dr. Richard Harris, part one. In part two, we'll be talking about a lot more, including the seven root causes of all disease, as Dr. Harris puts it, ivermectin, the handling of the pandemic, and much, much more. So stay tuned for that one. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please share it far and wide with as many friends and family as possible. And please check out my book, Return to Human, how modern medicine, the media, and the mundane have destroyed our health and how to move back towards optimal health. You can find it on Amazon. Just click the little filter, books. And please remember to rate this podcast on iTunes. That would help us get this message out to way more people. Thank you for listening.